Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Inside the Archives. I'm your host, Marty Rosenbaum, and thank you to everyone that has subscribed to the show on iTunes. You can find us in the iTunes store by searching for Inside the Archives. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating and review, and find a full list of every podcast we've released so far. And I want to extend my thanks to everyone that has helped support the podcast and shared it amongst your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Marty Rosenbaum. And right now I'm entertaining the idea of opening up a fan mail section of this podcast. So if you have anything you want answered about whatever, literally anything, folks, go ahead and tweet at me. Once again, my handle is at Marty Rosenbaum. And you can also follow the station at 93XRT on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You got a question for the show, whatever it may be, I'm happy to answer it. Joining me on today's show is the hardest working retiree in radio, Frankie Lee. Frank, welcome. Ta-da. So if you haven't started following Frank on Twitter, I would highly recommend doing so. His handle is at DJ Frankie Lee. Outside of showcasing his trademark humor and personality, he graces his followers with the wonderful science fiction quote of the day. And if there's anyone that personifies the relationship between science and rock and roll, it's Frankie Lee. So he's going to join us today, and we're going to talk about a subject that's been the fascination of musicians for decades now, and that's outer space, the final frontier, the cosmos, the void above, the heavens, however you want to define it. Artists have been reaching for the stars when creating music in an attempt to bring their listener up to another dimension. Heck, there's an entire genre of music dedicated to space. Wikipedia defines space rock as rock music genre characterized by loose and lengthy song structures centered on instrumental textures that typically produce a hypnotic, otherworldly sound. It may feature reverberation-laden guitars, minimal drumming, languid vocals, and, of course, references to drug use. So we're not here to talk about drugs and how they can feel oh-so-spacey, man, but we're going to talk about space and rock and roll. So, Frank, why do you, why do you think space and rock and roll go hand-in-hand hand together? I don't know, because it would be impossible to, like, smoke pot in space because there's no (laughs) oxygen. Right. And it would be dangerous if you, like, were on an oxygen-laden spaceship or something. Fire! Put that out! (laughs) You'd rapidly see the other side of space if you did something like that. Well, over the years, I mean, it's been something that's held consistent. You've seen different themes come and go in music, but space has been here since, you know, space rock was invented in the late 50s early 60s yeah well i think space is like the unknown you know ever since people would look up into the sky they would go that's that's the unknown that's probably where eternity is that might be where the afterlife is for example but i think you know for you know many centuries people would view it as more of a spiritual realm than like a physical realm even though there were people that would you know Obviously, there were astrologers and ancient astronomers that would know that there was something going on up there. Um, They'd follow the planets. They'd see the planets would move, for example. I think the word for planet means wanderer, whereas the stars would stay the same. So they had some idea of the structure of how things worked. And I think um, despite the, the claims that people used to think the world was flat, I think if anybody climbed up high enough, like on a mountain, you could obviously see the curve of the Earth. 
and everything in the sky, the other planets were all round as well. So I think most people realized the Earth was some kind of circle or globe. Um, but it was unknown, and, and you know, people would, uh, like I said, they would use it as a um, kind of a romantic place, moon and June. You know, Venus was like the uh, star of love, uh, that kind of thing. And then, be that after Galileo, you know, could see what was actually up there uh, in greater detail, uh, it still was more of a mystical place than maybe a scientific place. I'm not even really sure if they used to write songs about space, you know, hundreds of years ago. Uh, but in the modern era, you could trace it back to, um, you know, it, it really, once the space program started, uh, and we had some idea what was actually up there and what it looked like. Then you started to get songs like uh, Flying Saucers Rock and Roll by uh, Billy Lee Riley, I think was his name, no relation, or uh, Telstar, which was a famous instrumental song about the Telstar satellite hmm. and uh, things like that. And they had a lot of the, like you said, reverb and the Moog synthesizer kind of sounds to try to you know emulate uh, what otherworldly sounds might be like, even though, of course, there's no sound in space. Right. And a lot of that was brought to the forefront by Pink Floyd, who yeah. was huge mainstay in bringing that spacey, otherworldly sound to us here on Earth. So the question I have is when a lot of this music started taking place was during the height of the Great Space Race between right. the U.S. and the Soviet Union. How much did those cultural events and that influence the music that was going on? Well, I think there was a great influence on it. Then you had songs about um, humans being in space. For example, Space Oddity by David Bowie was a, uh, you know, a great song. Uh, it was set in space, but it was um, a very human story of an astronaut who you know, took the spacewalk wherever into eternity. Um, I think a lot of bands have trouble um, incorporating space or scientific uh, science fiction motifs into their songs because it is so otherworldly. And they like to go with more of a common denominator, which everybody can relate to, like love. That's why there's so many love songs, because everybody knows what that's like to be in a relationship. And, uh, you know, like bands like Pink Floyd and David Bowie, I think, worked on that as a base, but maybe put their things in outer space um, to try and make it more human and more relatable. Because a lot of bands tried science fiction stuff and it didn't really work out for them. And the, and did that expand beyond music during this time period? I mean, when you're when you're looking at you know say television, film, other art, was that emulating what were what you just mentioned going on in music? This otherworldly environment. I think so. You saw you certainly saw it in in uh, motion pictures of the day. Um, like there's a famous uh, science fiction um, movie called Forbidden Planet, which was very influential based loosely on a Shakespeare play, uh, The Tempest, I believe. But the soundtrack for that um, movie about spaceships had this weird, uh, like I think it was a theremin-type device, like an electronic, early electronic device uh, to create space sounds. And so you saw those kind of sounds creeping into uh, modern music, like the Beach Boys, for example, would use uh, the theremin on, uh, I think, on Good Vibrations. Even if it was a song not about space, it would be a song that would use the motif of space and science fiction to flavor something that was very much earthy. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a great instrument because it gives off a very mysterious vibe. The way that people play it is that you hold your left hand up 
and you move your left hand vertically while your right hand goes horizontally and it's as if you're you're playing air but stretching out this really high pitch you know noise that's coming out yeah it's almost like magic so right. it's really a good combination <laughs> of um, technology and human interaction right and that was a huge and the and the, you know the moog synthesizer and synthesizers those were another um, way of recreating that and even before that you know you could use a guitar if you would go into the you know a lot of musicians would like alter or physically damage the amplification of their guitars or the guitar itself to make some kind of weird sound uh, and I think a lot of that was inspired by um, you know the space race mm-hmm. uh, the main like the signals for example we would get from like um, Sputnik you know beep 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 that kind of thing uh, once again though there's no sound in space this was all human ways of connecting with things that were in space that was the kind of sound we would get and that was you know very influential on uh, the world of music and especially modern music right and were artists at that time trying to emulate that and trying to incorporate that into their sounds oh i think they absolutely were mm-hmm. and uh you know um i think uh, like the rolling stones for example did a very science fictiony album called their satanic majesty's request when they had uh, 2000 light years from home which is really one of the better songs ever written about, you know, extra stellar travel. Mm -hmm. And they had a lot of that kind of, you know, kind of sounds in them. Uh, Trying to emulate machinery, things like that, like hyperdrive, you know, um, those kind of science fiction inventions. Right. Still waiting for those, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Clock is ticking. Tick tock, tick tock. Well, Lee said the synthesizer played a monumental role. And not only giving musicians access to create these otherworldly sounds, but to do so with such ease. And you're still seeing it today. It's not something that where, you know, let's say other instruments that are less heavily used today than they were in the past. That it was really only one chunk of time where everyone had to use a wah pedal or everyone had to have an organ. But that is since past now even musicians that we're bringing here into the studio are utilizing moog synthesizers as other various forms of synthesizer and it's be- almost become a staple of a rock band to have one yeah and they're, they're almost like a quaint sound now like you know the moog synthesizer um you know i think when it was first used it was more or less a keyboard type device and it would have uh it would emulate you know traditional electronic piano or organ type sounds um but then it evolved into something that would be able to create almost any other kind of instrumentation type sound. So people would use that maybe as a way of getting a big sound for their record without having to have you know all musicians come in there and do it. So it was kind of a budgetary thing. And now a lot of times when a band will use um, uh, a synthesizer type sound, it will sound like the early Moog synthesizer sound. And that would be like it's an, on a separate instrument on whatever they're trying to get to. Mm. And if you notice, you know, all the time that you've been on the radio, songs that you're playing have started to incorporate that more. Um, or has that really been a consistent since it came to prominence? I think it goes in and out of style to a degree. I mean, I, as, as a classic synthesizer sounding album, I would point out Who's Next, for example, has that, uh, you know, whooshy synthesizer sound. And really was used as a specific instrument on many of the songs on that album. Mm. And I think there were some science fiction elements to The Who at that point, but they were more uh, focusing on uh, societal-type iterations, uh, evolution in a science way, and not so much on outer space, perhaps. Right. So a lot of musicians have 
base their identity off of space or space motifs. Like we mentioned, David Bowie did Space Odyssey. He created Ziggy Stardust as an alter ego. Uh, the Grateful Dead would dedicate parts of their show to an improvisational jam just called Space, where it was you know various noodlings and as if you were blasting off in a little spaceship going through the galaxy. What, what are some other you know notorious instances like that of rock and space coming together? Well, I think you know you mentioned Pink Floyd. They were certainly certainly did it well with uh, I think Interstellar Overdrive and uh, songs like Astronomy, Domini, and uh, Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun. Um, and they may have done it. You know, Roger Waters would be the first to admit that when Pink Floyd first started out, they weren't um, really good uh, at their instruments. They were not. Uh, virtuoso by any means, maybe not even competent. And if you have spacey type uh, computerized or Moog synthesizer type sounds, I think you have a little more flexibility, like you pointed out with the theremin. Um, Even though you're not necessarily musically competent, you're able to get a good sound. Mm. Um, You certainly don't have to be a virtuoso musician to get a good sound in the world of music. That's been proven over and over again. You just have to have some kind of emotional connection with the album, with the the thing you're trying to make, and a vision of where it's going to go. So I think maybe uh, some of those early electronic instruments were used as a way to supplement their lack of ability on traditional, you know, stringed instruments or drums or whatever they might be. Right. I think when you think of space rock, you think of Pink Floyd as being that classic band that really represents that. And um, a lot of the elements of it are still in music today and have been in the decades that have followed that. But it seemingly has gone out of the public's attention. Um, I know when I was preparing for the show today, I was looking up space rock history. How do you define space rock? All the classic terms. And there really seemed to be a huge gap between the 1970s to when the space race ended up until the early 2000s when electronic music really came to prominence. But it sounds like what you're talking about here is a lot of these instruments have been used time and time again. It may go in and out of style, but it has become a consistent for people. What I'm wondering is, you know, the space rock sound, is this something that just in America that phase may have ended? And was it more prominent in Europe or other countries abroad? I think there was definitely a European um, element to the uh, to space rock. I know there was a there was a radio station here in Chicago called uh, Triad, and they would play a lot of that kind of stuff. They would play Kraftwerk, they would play uh, Can, uh, a lot of bands that um, really never got much traction on traditional, you know, even subterranean you know, rock and roll FM stations. Um, so I think they maybe embraced it a little bit more for whatever reason. Uh, there's still a few examples. I would point out, if you needed a modern example of like a space rock band, you might point out Muse, because mm. uh, they often talk about science and, and stuff in their albums. They have that song called uh, Supermassive Black Hole. And I think uh, just the other day I was reading about uh, the first observed supermassive black hole eating another star eating in the terms of it absorbed. It is obviously yeah. <laughs> not a menacing thing. But that was actually observed, and uh, it was funny. I think it was in New Music Express. They said, let's hope other Muse lyrics do not come true. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite ominous. It is. But they also do, I think their album was called um, The Second Law, something like that, but it referred to the law of thermodynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I really think, you know, space rock in mainstream music happens somewhat sporadically. Like there was that Alan Parsons project did that iRobot album, which was um, they actually consulted with Isaac Asimov, famous science fiction writer, mm. uh, about the making of that album. Or there might be an individual song here or there. But the true space rock bands, I think, remained, um, you know, maybe a flavor more than a dominant force. Right. right. I mean, you know, bands like Yes, you could, is Yes a space rock band? It's I up mean, for debate. I mean, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of, a lot of those bands, especially in, you know, progressive rock, seem to incorporate those elements. Yeah, Rush, they have often have science fiction motifs in their music. And, and, and Yes, and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, for example, uh, King Crimson. Um, but, and you know, they certainly had their following, but I think if you looked at the mainstream, you know, the Rolling Stones or Pearl Jam or whatever, those kind of bands, uh, if they did do a space rock kind of thing, it would be like either something that was a flavor for one of their songs or maybe like, a um, not really representative of their entire catalog. Right. Oh, just a, a certain portion of it to highlight their influence. Yeah. Like I said, Moon in June, that's good for space because everybody knows what, you know, romance and the, the stars have mm -hmm. to offer, you know, if you're sitting out at the drive-in. But uh, to do an actual, you know, like David Bowie, going back to David Bowie, he was really one who did probably the most successful space science fiction type stuff. Um, but you could also look at the birds, the birds and Jefferson uh, Starship, Paul Kantner of them, mm -hmm. of Air Airplane and Starship. He was a big science fiction guy. Uh, the birds actually wrote a song about a quasar, quasi-interstellar radio source, uh, back in the 60s, I believe, named for, it was like a, you know, uh, it was just a numerical and alphabetical title. Mr. Spaceman, mm -hmm. they did that. And they were like a country folk rock band. Right. So, but they had, that was a strong um, vector for their sound. Right. Mainly because of Roger McGuinn. He, he made a quote once about how they brought, um, the birds brought rock and roll into the jet age with their mm -hmm. sound to a degree. Interesting. Well, you've never been shy to hide your love of science fiction no. <laughs> on the radio. But the question that I have is given the constraints that exist in presenting on air and your music selection how do you incorporate that into a show well you can't you got you can't be too much with it because then you're going to lose people although you know the most i think the number one tv show right now is the big bang theory yeah which is like I'm, i watched that show i never really watched it when it was you know brand new i watch it now and i go they're copying all my stuff <laughs> and they're doing it for the whole show and it's like the number one show <laughs> i mean they talk about string theory and you know all that kind of really uh, arcane stuff, and they, they're able to do it in a humorous way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but for as far as I'm concerned, I mean, we had a uh, a billboard once or a, a sticker that had me, you know, rock and roll hard science fiction brain. And uh, there's enough references, you know, in the mu in just in the world of music that we play on WXRT that it's easy to get to that occasionally and do a little drop in here and there. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been able to incorporate some of your favorite science fiction writers, uh, commentators, other artists into your show? I did interview Isaac Asimov once for a flashback. You did? Yeah. Uh, we were, it was, uh, I can't remember what year we were doing. I think it was in the early 70s, but it was the year that Comet Kahootek was going to make an appearance. 
And as soon as people, you know, the prediction was it was going to be this giant Comet Halley type appearance that would be visible in the daytime. It's going to be a huge uh, event in the sky, day and nighttime skies. So a lot of people freaked out. And they said it was going to be a harbinger of the end of the world because that's what um, some people think comets in ancient times. They thought the appearance of a comet was uh, trouble because hmm. it, was like it wasn't like a planet. You know, all of a sudden it would appear, and you could see it in the daytime, so it was associated with um, doom and gloom usually. So I called up, I somehow was able to call Isaac Asimov up. I called his magazine, and then they gave me his home phone. So I called him up and asked him why today in the 20th century would people, which is when I was doing it, you know, it was back before the 21st century started, but still the modern day. But why would people today be so convinced that a comet, you know, a natural event would mean uh, some kind of apocalyptic event? And he said, uh, because there's always going to be stupid people and there's nothing you can do to prevent them from saying and doing stupid things. (laughs) (laughs) Which was, uh, it's an old saying, it's like, against stupidity, the gods themselves strive in vain, something like that. So he was rephrasing that. But that was one of my big science fiction guys, wow. science fiction finds. And he was so nice. And uh, he's gone now. But he died actually shortly after that. But he was, you know, talking to Isaac Asimov was pretty pretty amazing. Yeah. Have you had any other instances like that? I'm trying to think. I think that might be the only... Uh, Occasionally, I get science fiction authors that retweet my science fiction quote of the day, mm-hmm. usually when it's one of theirs. Right. <laughs> and they give me a little smiley face. But uh, generally, I don't... Oh, I did interview Stephen King once, too. You did? Yeah. Stephen King uh, is when uh, he did a uh, play not long ago, a musical with John Mellencamp uh, called The um, Boys of Darkland County, I think, something like that. I hope yeah, I yeah. But uh, I got, had a chance to talk with him and John Mellencamp. And that was also pretty amazing. Stephen King, more of a, he's kind of a science fiction slash horror uh, writer, but uh, definitely has a lot of science fiction uh, tropes uh, throughout most of his uh, books. Mm. So I did have an, an encounter with him. And I don't know, they've been reluctant to put <laughs> long interviews with science fiction yeah <laughs> well you know like you said it, it it's such an interesting topic but i almost worry they you get worried about going over people's heads with it it's true you know? but you know the, when you think like i said about the big bang theory but look at all the movies now too they're yeah. all all the big almost all of the big blockbuster movies are now science fiction movies well look at the success of star wars star Case wars the avengers and all the comic books those are all science fiction uh things mm-hmm I mean, I was going to have, uh, I had an opportunity to have Nichelle Nichols, who played Uhura on Star Trek, the original series, had a chance to uh, have her on my show. And I was going to make it, you know, have the Star Trek sound effects in the background while I was interviewing her and stuff. But um, I went around the station asking people if they knew who Nichelle Nichols was, and nobody knew. So <laughs> I thought that didn't, the program director didn't agree with that. Yeah. This being a popular ratings device. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Well, you know, before uh, before we wrap things up today, I gotta gotta bring it back around on the music and ask you what your favorite songs about space are. Uh, and if you were to make a playlist of songs for people that are interested in this or listen to the podcast that I can post about it afterwards to include, what would you put on there? Okay. Well, I would definitely put on uh, "Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun," 
which you'd never want to do if you're a navigator on a spaceship, <laughs> right? Because that would <laughs> <laughs> crispy. <laughs> I like, um, well, Starman by David Bowie. That's one of the all-time greats. It's, it's really a song about the um, prime directive where there's an advanced race and they're reluctant to make contact with us because that often turns out badly. Uh, he'd like to come and meet us, but he's afraid we'd, he'd blow our minds, I think is how the lyric goes. And I think David Bowie got it absolutely right with that one. Um, 2,000 Light Years From Home by the Rolling Stones, which I mentioned before, which is uh, one of the very few uh, songs about interstellar travel. Um, I always had a guilty favorite. It's kind of a stupid song. But it's got. <laughs> There's no wrong answers here. <laughs> no, I understand. <laughs> but it's uh, "Space Trucking" by Deep Purple. Mm. You know, it's got that do 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 yeah do do do, and then it's the synthesized drums. Yeah. <laughs> but the lyrics are, you know, kind of. I wouldn't call them stupid, but they're kind of playful. I think about romping around the solar system. Uh, I'd like that one though. Um, well, I liked uh, that song about the quasar, which uh, the name escapes me right now, by the birds. That's a very good one. We'll have to look that up afterwards. Yeah, it's out there. To it's find like uh, RQ123 or something like that. I'm, I'm getting that one wrong. Uh, Supermassive Black, Black Hole by, the, mm. by Muse. That song, not only a great interstellar song, but it smokes. It's got a great driving beat. Yeah. Uh, highly recommend that one. Um, boy, those are just a few that come off the top of my head right now. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do after recording this. We'll go to 93XRT.com, we'll put all the songs that Frank just listed, and you can listen to them back to back to back, turn the lights off, maybe or turn on a YouTube video of the galaxy, close your mind, and just get lost in space. You'll never be the same again. <laughs> Under the Milky Way, that's a good one, too, by the church. Under the Milky Way, there we go. Galactic rock. <laughs> the home neighborhood. Well, the last question I have, and I assume many artists have explored this idea. I don't know how far they've taken it, but do you think we'll ever see a concert in space? Wow. I think so, yeah. I mean, I don't know. The space program is somewhat morbid right now, though. I mean... We do have the space station, but and there's plans to go to Mars and stuff. But as far as having like a permanent, um, comfortable place where people could go, like a hotel in space, like you know, in 2001, mm -hmm. Stanley Kubrick movie, uh, or like a hotel or a permanent habitation on another world, that seems a ways off. But as soon as that does happen, yes, of course there'll be concerts. Who do you think the first artist to play in space would be? <laughs> Maybe they haven't been born yet. Yeah, that's impossible. I mean, Pink Floyd might be a little, I don't know if they could take 5Gs or whatever to get up there. <laughs> Maybe we need a better propulsion source. <laughs> There's a famous uh, one, you know, a quick final story. There's a famous uh, science fiction story called uh, Star Dance by Spider Robinson and his wife, Jean. And it's the story of a woman who wanted to be a dancer, but she didn't have the right body for it. She was too heavy to be a dancer on Earth. So she moved her dance troupe into space, into uh, microgravity, and they could do dances up there. And then aliens came, and they appeared to be hostile. So she did the star dance to show them that the good things about Earth, and then they went away and you know saved interstellar war. Interesting. So, Interesting. <laughs> anyway. Well, 
one thing we've learned is that uh, the, the possibilities are endless. They are. And boundless. There's the no li- limits of what universe. you can imagine up, which I can understand why you're fascinated by it now. Well, the great thing about music is it's made so simply, but it really is bigger than the entire universe. It is. And it, it evokes that emotion, too. You know, like you're talking about how the infinite becomes possible and how you create a image of what that might be like or a sound of what that might be like. No, absolutely. I, you know, when I was a kid, I used to go to the Evergreen Park Library, and if the book had a little spaceship on the on the spine, that was one I was interested in. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> missed a lot of other good books that way, but well, that's all right. You, go, you gotta go, limit yourself. Yeah, you got you got to pursue your passion, or so they say. Well, Frank, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast, and uh, it was a pleasure having you. It was my pleasure talking about space. Yeah, thank you. Thanks once again to Frankie Lee for coming by and chatting all things space, rock and roll, and science fiction. It was a wonderful conversation and happy to have the hardest working retiree in radio. So a couple news items to cover since our last podcast, and we'll start with Paul McCartney, who after several days of teasing fans with artwork on social media, has finally spilled the beans on his latest project. And that, my friends, is his new studio album, Egypt Station, which is his first since 2013. And to celebrate, Paul McCartney shared two new songs. You can listen to both of those right now on 93XRT.com. McCartney was asked about the album in an interview, and he said, I liked the words Egypt Station. It reminded me of the album albums we used to make. Egypt Station starts off at the station on the first song, and then each song is like a different station. So it gave us some idea to base all the songs around that. I think of it as a dream location that the music emanates from. Chris Cornell and his daughter Tony also released a beautiful cover of Prince's Nothing Compares to You for Father's Day. It's not the first time we've heard Cornell's take on the song, but him and his daughter recorded the version a couple years ago, and she released it this past Father's Day as a tribute to her father, and she has a wonderful, wonderful voice. The talent you can hear runs in the family, and we were happy to have that in our hands In the YouTube description, she wrote a nice little tribute to her father, Chris, saying, Recording the song with you was as special and amazing experience. I wish I could repeat 100 times over, and I know you would too. Happy Father's Day, Daddy. Nothing compares to you. And what a sweet remembrance to legendary voice that was. And on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, Perry Farrell has revealed he's activated full dad mode and has embarrassed his kids. When asked by Rolling Stone if there was anything that made him feel old, he said... My kids do, just because they don't think I'm that cool. It's like, they go to Lollapalooza, but they don't want to walk next to me. That killed me. I'll go, let's go, and my boy will be with his friends, and he'll stand there, and I'm going, come on, man, let's go. He goes, do I gotta walk with you everywhere? That moment, I really felt old. Like, damn, I'm not that cool. So I tried everything. I go skateboarding with him, which is all right, because I can skate pretty decent. By far, the oldest guy there in the bulls. So, uh... Yeah, just A, conjure that image of Perry Farrell skateboarding, but also just imagine that totally embarrassing situation with his son at Lollapalooza, which every kid and their parent has had at some point in their life. So I won't give him too much crap for it because we've all been embarrassed by our parents at one point, don't want them around us. But 
it's in full loving, and it's kind of funny to hear Farrell talk about that. So before we wrap things up, we'll end on a lighthearted note. The latest viral tweet sees musicians sharing incredible stories about their least attended gigs. I'm going to give you a brief summary of some of the responses, but I highly recommend you check it out on our website. We have a blog post up talking about this and referencing the tweet at hand. So here's a couple of the responses. Too many to count, particularly memorable one, was in Burlington. We were playing to our roadie and the sound dude. Local bands had left, then the sound dude left. We stopped after three songs and the promoter appeared and screamed at us to finish the set. Another one was, I played to two teenagers who just made out in the corner the entire set. Then they thanked us and profusely left. We once played to three people at Four Mile Creek Hotel on a Wednesday night, and they spat at us for not playing a Rage Against the Machine cover. They also yelled at us in between songs that will never make it if you don't show your fans some more respect. And finally, my all-time favorite one, which includes a photo of it, all it says is, I've played to goats, and there's a guy with a bass guitar and some goats in the background. So... Check that blog post out on 93XRT.com and check out the hilarious responses. Do it as well. Well, thank you once again to everyone who tuned in to this podcast, and thank you to Frankie Lee for stopping by and being my guest on the show. As a reminder, we are now listed on iTunes. All you need to do is just search the iTunes store for Inside the Archives. You can subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating and a review, and find a full list of every podcast that we've released so far. My big thanks once again in advance for doing that as we continue to build the podcast, build up some subscribers, and get some interaction. And as another reminder, I am on Twitter at Marty Rosenbaum. You can tweet me any questions you have, and if we get enough, get enough good ones, I'll introduce the fan mail segment on the podcast, which I anticipate to be highly entertaining. So for 93XRT and Inside the Archives, I'm Marty Rosenbaum. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.